Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. I'm Amy Rojic, Director of BDO Center for Governance, and I'm so happy to have the chance to sit down with Amanda Spinner, Managing Director of Gestalter and Company, to discuss considerations for board communications as part of an overall governance strategy in the face of numerous disruptions impacting the business. Amanda is a Managing Director, as I mentioned, is also a founding member of her firm. She provides communications counsel and support to global investment firms in various stages of their evolution, as well as private and public companies. She has significant expertise advising private equity, sustainable investing, and alternative asset management firms, as well as CLO managers, structured credit investors, and direct lenders. Amanda also has extensive experience developing and implementing strategic positioning, reputation management, media relations, and ESG programs, as well as advising her clients on corporate developments and special situations that may include shareholder activism and proxy contests, mergers and acquisitions, succession planning, and personal matters, along with complex litigation and crises. So Amanda, that's a whole lot of things you're involved in. So welcome to BDO in the boardroom. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. All right, so we're going to dive right in because we all recognize certainly that boards are getting more and more pressure these days from investors and regulators and others about the level of transparency provided regarding their oversight responsibilities and their role in ensuring management execution of sustainable business strategy. So maybe we begin by giving a flavor for how your firm engages with directors and where do they find the most challenges in providing adequate transparency in satisfying their stakeholders? So I think when we're looking to partner with directors, and I should start by saying that we we work both on the activist and on the company side. So, and more often than not on the activist side. So hopefully this will also give a flavor to companies and directors as to how they should be thinking about the vulnerabilities that they may have as they're preparing for potential proxy contests or shareholder concerns or engagement. And where we begin is really by offering an outside perspective. Oftentimes, boardrooms are met with directors that have been there for several years and, you know, really are not looking at the outside perspective of what's happening in a changing world and how that impacts their strategies. So, for example, even in terms of sustainability right now, there's there's a very large lack of transparency, excuse me, Um, It's a squishy area and being able to think through some of the challenges in that area and figure out how to communicate that to shareholders to ensure that they're meeting the needs of the environmental, social and governance concerns is where we'll really come into the fold and help them think through the strategies and the pressure points that they have to be prepared for and to execute those in a way that will resonate with all of their stakeholders. Um, I also think that There's a little bit of opposition research that we help in getting, you know, where those pressure points are, where are their weak spots, how should they be thinking about transparently communicating to shareholders about what they're doing and get ahead of the eight ball a little bit. Because I think that where 
oftentimes companies get tripped up is that they feel as though unless they are ready to execute on a plan, they cannot vocalize it or communicate it. And there are certainly steps that companies can take as they're thinking through those plans towards sustainable business goals in talking about them with their shareholders. Um, if you're not thinking about that yet, you're clearly a step behind. And if you're not thinking about the vulnerabilities, um, I would say that that's really another cause for concern because preparing for them is really important as you're thinking through um, a changing landscape, for lack of a better better term. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, the, the expectation and I think we're living in such a crazy environment because we don't have necessarily mandates, if you will, like a lot of this reporting on sustainability is voluntary. And to your point, you know, you don't have to be all the way down a path to be reporting out to stakeholders. They, they want to know that you're actively thinking about these issues and how you're going about them. And I think that's where, to your point, companies can and should differentiate themselves from their competitors. So I think that makes a ton of sense what you just provided. Yeah, I think it's about being a little bit creative too. There's a lot of data that we have access to today. And frankly, just saying that, you know, you're going to have a net zero target isn't enough anymore. You know, signing the UNPRI isn't enough anymore. And it's really being able to validate the um, objectives that you have with the small achievements along the way and taking the data that you can um, collect and sharing that with shareholders. I think that the issue, as you so so well said, is that there isn't a mandate for it and there isn't a one size fits all approach. So it's being able to think through the data that best fits your company industry and really thinking about it in terms of categorizing against your peers. Because at the end of the day, whether it's performance, whether it's sustainability, you know, growth, you're really looking at it and whether an activist is going to potentially come in, they're looking at it within your peer set. So being able to think about how you can effectively change um, in, for the better in terms of your industry and really standing out amongst the peers, because if you're, for example, an oil and gas company that's potentially still running a lot of, you know, poor assets, but you're very much ahead of the curve in terms of the sustainability plans that you're running out in the renewable energy, the the good is offsetting the bad and, and you're still ahead of the curve in terms of your industry peer set. Right. Well said. So you said a few things earlier that I want to pick up on. So in one one case here, your firm provides support on both the defense and the offense when it comes to activists. So the and you also said boards who aren't actively focused on continuously evaluating their vulnerabilities and by they, I mean the company's vulnerabilities as well as the board's, and working towards addressing those really put themselves at risk for activist campaigns. So maybe you can share some of the key areas of focus for activists and where boards should be spending their efforts. Sure. So I think, look, when you when you take a step back, boards have to hold management accountable. That is their job, That and they have to be a fiduciary to shareholders. And in terms of the very straightforward points that I think activists have been and um, will continue to be very focused on is corporate governance. You know, are boards entrenched? Do they need to be refreshed? Is there diversity? I mean, we're seeing even states of California, we see NASDAQ now creating rules to ensure that there's diversity on boards um, across across um, all of their companies. So that's one. Um, two, I think you're looking at operating performance. You're looking at streamlining the balance sheet. 
you're looking, are you innovating to stay relevant, whether that's on the technology side, whether that's on the ESG side, um, again, also within your peer set, right? So if you're, you know, one industry is obviously, if you're in fintech, you're going to be certainly not competing with um, an oil and gas company. So really thinking about it within that, within that framework as well. Um, ESG is obviously a very large one um, and is obviously we've seen coming to the forefront in terms of a lot of activist campaigns recently. Um, and I think that there are different ways to think about ESG as well, right? So it's it's being able to tie that to an economic argument. I think why we're seeing this come up more and more with activist investors now than ever before and them being able to be successful is because they've been able to tie what you know, environmental activists have brought up as social issues at companies for years, but showing that there is really a connection between that environmental issue, whether it's the E or whether it's human capital or whether it's governance um, that ties to the bottom line over the long term. So being able to show that is from a financial standpoint has also turned into a large focus for activists. Um, beyond that, you know, I think we're going to see, we've obviously seen with the campaign against Exxon last year, a large focus on the E. I think we're going to see much more focus on the S, how companies are treating their stakeholders um, and engaging with their communities. And that's going to be a continued focal point. We're obviously seeing in a world of um, COVID supply chain issues, how people are managing their supply chains that you know, that goes into ESG and operations, right? So there's going to be a lot of overlap in some of these um, pressure point areas as well. So I think the important thing for boards to really remember is, you know, there's there's never enough planning, um, right? There's always going to be new issues evolving in an environment that we're in. And if you're not thinking ahead for the future and being prepared for how to innovate your again, a little bit one step behind, but it's also important to remember that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, having worked on the the um, defense side um, for many years as well, there are oftentimes break glass decks that are put together, and these are very much formulaic scenario planning about what could happen if an activist is at your at your doorstep. And I think oftentimes where companies can get tripped up is and from a messaging standpoint specifically, oftentimes companies will get caught up on one word and, you know, they have this whole plan in place. They have their statements ready to go for each of these scenarios. If it's a corporate governance issue, if it's a ESG issue, if it's a community issue, and then all of a sudden the activist is there, the 13D is filed and, you know, they panic. Um, and what's really important for companies to remember is that not to get up, caught up on one word, but to really think about getting their message out there as swiftly as possible and as succinctly as possible to stay within that news cycle from a communication standpoint. The media is going to care for a few hours and then they're gonna go on to the next situation. And if you lose that momentum that potentially could get picked up from an activist situation filing a 13D and not getting your message out there in response in that news cycle, you've now lost complete control of the narrative and your ability to communicate with your stakeholders on day one. And that's that's where oftentimes many companies fall behind at the get-go because, you know, day two, you know, the news is on to something else. 
I think you said a you said a lot of really important things in there, and one of the areas that I know when we were talking and in, in preparation for this, you know, there, there's also the positive side of when activist campaigns unveil vulnerabilities or things that the company needed needed to to change. Can can you maybe talk about a few of those and and some of the maybe some of the areas where you foresee additional activism coming to to bear? Sure. So look, I think that frankly, you have to think about activists have always had this moniker of being corporate raiders back in the day. Now that's obviously changing. We have people calling themselves engaged share owners. We have people calling themselves engaged investors. The term activist sort of has a negative connotation with it. But at the end of the day, activists are really trying to particularly those that hold on for a longer time horizon, change these companies for the better and, you know, influence not only their internal policies, but all at the and at the board level, but also ensure that um, they're performing well. So if you're taking the example of, you know, engine number one versus Exxon, um, which I was closely involved in last year on, on the activist side, you're looking at a company that had great directors. They were blue chip people at the, you know, at the, that level. If you're taking them all individually, they're they're great. But but from an environmental standpoint, the company was doing very poorly, and the, they didn't have anyone in their boardroom that had the expertise from an energy perspective to be able to look to the future of innovation and ensure that they were on the right path going forward to be able to sustain their business model while also performing well and not, you know, basically killing the planet. So, you know, I think that that's where you're seeing activism come in for a sense of both good on the environmental or ESG side, but also on the performance side. And, you know, going back to what I said earlier, the reason why, at least in my opinion, and it's been widely reported on that engine number one was successful in that campaign and so many environmental activists have not been able to be successful previously is because they were able to tie it to an economic argument. And like it or not, we live in a world where money matters um, and shareholder value matters and being able to tie the environmental concerns to a number over the long term was critical. And they did that and that inevitably allowed them to be successful and and get the um, votes of some of the largest holders. No, that that makes sense. And some of the some when you think about some of the the level of effort and the time and even the monetary commitment in fighting, a, you know, an advance or a campaign by an activist, can you give us a little bit of perspective on that? Because some may be wondering, well, you know, I, I haven't actually been involved in an activist event yet. What what does that what does that really look like? Yep. So I think. It's a it's a couple couple of different ways to think about it. So first, excuse me, at the very core, activist investors, this is their full-time job. You you run a hedge fund strategy, you run a special purpose vehicle, you might do research for three to four years before and slowly build up a position over time before actually launching a campaign, whether that be a proxy contest or just a push for some other type of change at the company that you are pretty confident you're going to win before you start. I would say every activist investor I've ever worked with is confident that the research and work that they've put into it from an analytical standpoint 
um, is is worth the fight um, to go through and that they have a message that they can get shareholders aligned with. When you're thinking about it from the company perspective, you know they have a company to run. And this is a whole nother project on top of that that can really um, take away from the day-to-day operations. It's obviously a distraction. It's not particularly helpful um, on the on a day-to-day basis. And the, the time and effort that's put into this from both sides is tremendous. And you're not only talking about um, the companies and, and uh, the activists, you're talking about proxy solicitors, people that are soliciting the vote. You're talking about dealing with investor meetings. You're talking about dealing with ISS and Glass-Lewis, some of the largest advisory groups. You're putting together decks. You're putting together letters to shareholders. You're putting together analyst or investor days, potentially. Um, lots of time and effort to ensure that you're communicating your messages, particularly in a fight. And you know, oftentimes you're working with someone in my shoes to communicate those messages to all of your stakeholders and lawyers and if you're a company, a banker, um, to get all of your evaluations right. So there's there's a lot of time, effort, and dollars that go into this. Um, you know, I think that something actually in just using the uh, the engine number one campaign as an example because it's been reported and you know is is topical right now is that that campaign cost about thirteen million dollars. That is nothing compared to what campaigns cost. They can cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And there was a very um, targeted approach that they took in terms of focusing more on institutional than retail mailings, given um, where the shareholder base was that they thought that they could win the support of. And I think that that's something that people don't think about very much either, really thinking about polling and targeting and thinking about where your investors are regionally and where could you put the most dollars to work to make sure that you're having the most impact. All of these things are taking place and there are multiple um, groups that are part of a working group to get companies and activists over the finish line. That that makes sense. I'm going to I want to shift to something that we had been talking about ahead of this, and it's really engaging with the media because I think you you teed that up earlier. But you know, and and that by that I mean you know the the reporting, the news outlets, social platforms. There's a broad variety of obvious tools and apps that are being used to monitor corporate activity, and this all requires a strategy all of its own. So maybe you can spend some time talking about how companies and those charged with governance can be viewing the use of media as part of their overall communication strategy. I think that's a great question. Um, And I think that oftentimes people don't realize how valuable the media can be in terms of these campaigns and in general. At the end of the day, the media is a credible third party. They can either validate you, they can break, break you down, they can bring you up, they can be supportive. They can be non-supportive. And you're talking about media that's mainstream. You're talking about financial press, industry press. You're talking about opinion writers. Those those, that can be critical in terms of um, steering a campaign in a certain direction based upon the people that they're speaking with. Mm -hmm. So I think at the very core, um, companies oftentimes underestimate the power that the media can have to both institutional and retail shareholders. Um, So I'll I'll just start there. And I think that's something that I said earlier, which is really critical is being able to ensure that you're in the news cycle. Media is sweeping right now. Um, It's not like it was and it's 24 seven. And what happens 
a minute, you know, 10 minutes later isn't relevant anymore. So being able to think through how to communicate with the media and engage reporters in a way that's going to be helpful to your campaign or helpful to the audiences that you're seeking to reach is also really important. So if you're a company and, and an activist just came out with a 13D, as I said earlier, even if it's just saying, you know, we want to engage with all of our shareholders, some message that gets that gets it out there. Maybe sometimes there isn't a message that you're going to say, but if there is a message that you are going to say and it's part of your strategy, being able to get it into that same news cycle is very important. Um, I think oftentimes when we're thinking about media, also we think just about you know newspapers or online articles, and we don't think about new channels, as you were saying, that can be leveraged in campaigns tremendously. Um, I, I, I'd start with just TV. I think from a company perspective, from a corporate perspective, the CNBCs, the Bloombergs of the world, the Yahoo Finance, they reach that wide retail audience, particularly if you're a company with a retail shareholder base that can be essential to being able to get your CEO in front of a wide group of people that never really have communication with, with him or her. Um, and being able to vocalize your messages to that broad audience. I also think that, you know, tools such as press releases, shareholder letters, things that are communications materials that you can share with the media to share your messages are also equally important and they're going to be part of any campaign. And then finally, um, social media, which is which is huge and and you know only continuing to grow. Um, in today's day and age, I think when we spoke last time, Amy, I was telling you about a campaign that I worked on against DuPont many years ago, for what seems like many years ago, back in 2014 or 2015. And at that point in time, we were taking out tombstone ads. We were you know, playing with Google Words to try to get this activist's um, website that it had created for the campaign up in Google results. And, and we're just starting to toy with the idea of targeting on Google. And today, if you're not incorporating Google AdWords sort of on day one, again, you're a step behind the rest, right? It's really thinking about how are we leveraging Twitter? How are we leveraging Instagram? How are we leveraging LinkedIn to get our messages across to all of these audiences, employees, investors, um, other credible third parties that could help be helpful in terms of validating arguments in the media, right? So that perhaps it's not the company speaking on behalf of itself or the activist speaking on behalf of itself, but it's a credible third party, a professor, a lawyer that's talking about their position um, and really thinking through how to target those audiences on social. So not just putting on a LinkedIn post, but thinking about where are our, our shareholders based how do we get this to this specific audience? Because we know that there are, you know, people between the ages of 30 and 50 in Southern California that have a big holding of this stock and we're going to show them this ad. And, and there are tons of ways to do that from a social standpoint as well. So it's really a fully integrated approach and realizing that um, obviously the messages that are coming from you directly to your audiences are critical shareholder letters are never going away, but being able to have third party validators in the press or through social is also highly important. I, I appreciate all your thoughts on that. 
think one thing I do want to go back to, and maybe this will kind of be our, our final closing point, because this is a governance podcast. So I do want to go back to thinking about the board's profile when, when these things happen. And, you know, usually, you know, if you're, you're in this, it's like, well, where was the board? You know, whatever the issue is, well, what was the board's responsibility for this? Where were they? Why, why is this allowed to have come to this point where we now have an activist at our door? So if, if you could talk about that a little bit and, and talk about when you, you know, you're consulting with some of your clients and the, those are those are hard conversations to have. It's, it's a self-reflection by the board of directors in, in terms of how they could have handled something differently or are, do they have the right competencies within their current mix on the board to really have done a better job, right? So maybe speak a little bit about that. Those are very, <clears throat> excuse me, tough questions to, to answer and also tough conversations to be had. And I think that oftentimes the biggest pressure point or vulnerability is entrenchment at a governance level and boards that just have not had turnover and are really trying to hold up an old regime. And I'll, I'll give an example of, of a situation in which there was a proxy contest launched um, by Bow Street back in 2019 against Matt Cali, which is a publicly traded real estate investment trust now under the name of Varus. We'll get to that, that part of the story. But, you know, there was significant entrenchment at the board level. There was, you know, a CEO um, that, you know, had clearly been underperforming. And Bow Street ultimately, to make a long story short, won a 2019 proxy contest. They got four people into the boardroom. It was an eight-person board, so not a majority. Um, and things did not really uh, change. There was a lot of struggle that continued between the new and old regime. Um, it ended up that Bow Street launched a second proxy contest in 2020 and renominated the four people that that had already been on the board and then nominated another four people. And there was actually an internal sort of board against board proxy contest whereby um, the four incumbent directors on the board had to send out a, a public letter. It's available out there on behalf of themselves um, and basically removing themselves from the board and talking against their other board members at that point in time. Um, and the end of the 2020 proxy contest, those four directors that had been put on the board um, in 2019 were um, reinstated into the board in 2020. Um, Bow Street got another four members of its slate onto the board and that story ended with a completely refreshed eight person board um, and in ultimately last year, the CEO um, getting changed out. There was a transition period, but the CEO was pushed out um, and there was an interim CEO and now a permanent CEO. So then, since then, the company has obviously rebranded and changed its entire strategic direction. So I think that you know, going back to it, really being able to look yourself in the mirror and say, is there a way that we can get ahead of this? Can we listen to the activist? Is there, are there tough questions that we have to have in conversations amongst each other? Do we have diversity on our board? Are we all, you know, white men? You know, that's, that's the old regime. You know, do we have women on our board and not just one woman? Do we have, you know, more than one woman? Do we have racial and ethnic diversity on our board? Do we have LGBTQ diversity on our board? 
Do we have people with expertise in our industry on our board? I think that those are things, you know, as I said with Exxon, you could have the most blue chip um, directors, but if they don't have direct experience operating the types of companies that um, company that you run and and innovating expertise as well in terms of where we're going from a technology and ESG perspective in the world that we're in today, um, you're, you're basically not doing your fiduciary to shareholders and ensuring that the company is on the right path for growth. So I think that those those are all considerations and hard discussions that boards have to have and you know inevitably um, listen to the to if especially if you're having an activist come in that wants to engage, I would say keeping your ears open and having those dialogues ongoing and trying to have productive conversations is really important because just shutting out an activist is is not going to look good one from the broader shareholder base, but two, because as I said at the very beginning of this podcast, I think having an outside perspective when you're so in the weeds is is critical. Um, and being able to take that research and run with it is going to be extremely important as you're seeking to hopefully do best by shareholders and outperform over the long term. Your comments are all really timely here. And it's it's interesting. The, the timing for this recording is, is just prior to the launch of our annual shareholder alert that we send out. And a lot of the, the information you have in there is around some of the issues you've been, you've been discussing in, in a lot of detail today. But I think at the end of the day, engagement with shareholders is extremely important. And you know, firms like yours that help with the outside perspective allow companies to see that, you know, and that that engagement is so important. Whether you're engaging directly, whether it's through messaging that you're trying to get across, um, but oftentimes, you know, proxy fights and shareholder proposals they can be kind of nipped in the bud before they get started with just sheer good communication and good discussion points and and all of the things talking about is recognizing your vulnerabilities and doing something about them before it comes to an activist campaign. So really appreciate your thoughts today, Amanda, and hope to have you back on on more from BDO in the boardroom. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right. And tune in for more episodes. And thank you to our listeners today. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit bdo.com slash BDO Knows Governance.